Yeah, is the PowerPoint okay? Just a few questions um, to test your knowledge of fruits and vegetables. Okay, so um, there's a show in the States for kids called Sesame Street, and one of the segments says which one of these things is not like the other. So does anybody know which one of these is the odd one out and why? Do you know? Tomato. A, t- a tomato. Why is it? Does anybody know why the tomato is the odd one out? Yeah, it's, it's actually. Anybody know why it's actually considered a fruit? You guys are great. Seeds are on the inside. Okay, the next slide is blank, so just leave it blank. Okay. Does anybody know the only fruit that has the seeds on the outside? And the answer is strawberry. Okay. Uh, you guys are amazing. La- last one. Uh, does anyone know what this is? I think someone said it, but I can't quite hear. Wheat is close. Did someone say barley? I can't quite hear. If you said barley, that's right. So uh, this is barley. Um, I'm going to read Ruth chapter 2 later, and so we'll talk about barley. But uh, if we can go to the next one, I thought it would be good if we get kind of an idea about this. I looked at this. I I was kind of researching kind of farming uh, because most of the story takes place like in a field. So I thought we would get down some of the what are the words and what do they mean. Um, in, in Palestine, there are still small fields where they harvest crops just like they did in Ruth's time. Uh, here's a picture taken, I don't know, maybe 50 or 60, I don't know, 40 years ago, a bit older. But uh, So you have people called reapers, and they have hand sickles that they're just cutting the barley or the grain with. Um, if you go to the next one, please. And then what they would do is those reapers would take the, the grain or barley or whatever when they would cut it, and they would bundle it together to dry like this. Okay? See, and those were called sheaves. Those are the little strips are called uh, sheaves of grain. So we can go to the next one. Um, and, and when I read Ruth 2, just to get a, you know, like a good picture in your mind, because it helps to get pictures in your mind, you might picture something like this. Obviously, it's a drawing, but you've got the reapers on the left, and they're going through the field, and they're cutting the stalks, and they're keeping them. And then you have people called gleaners, uh, which Ruth was a gleaner, and they would come behind the people uh, cutting the grain or whatever, and they would pick up the bits that would fall down. And incidentally, Ruth's gleaning uh, gave way to a, a song a couple years ago called Glean on Me, if you've ever heard of that song. Thanks for that courtesy. Laugh. I appreciate that. Uh, so the next one shows what, what they kind of do. This is, this is just like eating, you know. I mean, we, we go to Tesco's and get some food. This is just to eat. They would take all of these stalks once they've dried out, and they put them down on the ground. And one method uh, is called, called threshing, how they got the actual little bits to eat, the oats, is they would have cows walk on them. It's really appetizing, isn't it? Cows walking on your food. Or, and this is probably when we think of Ruth more like probably what she did, as a gleaner. Uh, this picture is, is a very old picture, um, and all of these, I think what the caption said is uh, all of these were women, and you can see the piles of grain or barley or whatever they are, and I just put an arrow because what this woman is doing is she's holding a big stick. And so what they had to do to actually make the, the barley or whatever into a bit that they could eat is they had to sit it on the ground and just whack it with a stick a whole bunch of times until you get uh, the picture that I showed you just in the beginning of all the little bits of barley or grain. So what, what I'm trying to say is that this, this is just revealing a little bit of Ruth's character that I think if you just read it, you don't really get. 
um, she had to do a lot of work uh, just to get a little bit of a meal. And, and when we read about it a little bit later on, it says when she gathered all of her barley, she had enough for about 35 to 40 pounds of it um, that she carried home in a day's work, which is a lot of work to do. I think that was the last one, but you can go ahead and switch it off now. Um, so once again, we're going to be in Ruth chapter 2. Uh, and I'm going to recap chapter 1 then read chapter 2. But I do, I do just want to pray just one more time if that's okay. Um, Father, I just want to tell you that uh, I love you. Um, and I think you're absolutely incredible. And I just want to say that we need you more than we really understand. And I just want to pray that just how, as John led us in worship with music, Father, that we would worship you by hearing your word, which is precious. And I pray that when we hear it, we just would be changed from our heart out and we would go out of here a different people. So Holy Spirit, just speak to us words you want us to hear. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Ruth, just a quick recap. Uh, Ruth chapter 1, uh, this lady n- named Naomi and her husband, uh, they move away uh, to the land of Moab because there's a famine in Israel. Uh, the husband, Elimelech, ends up dying. Her two sons marry Moabite women. Uh, a little bit later on, the two sons end up dying. And then Naomi decides, obviously, she's going to move back to Israel because her life has been totally destroyed. Uh, One of the daughters-in-laws decides that she's going to remain with her family in Moab. But Ruth makes a pledge um, because of her love for Naomi to stay with her. And I think last week, um, part of that was also she had kind of forsaken the gods of her people and decided to to worship the one true God of Israel. So she comes back uh, with Naomi. And that was pretty much the whole of chapter 1. And then we pick up in chapter 2, Ruth 2. And I'm just going to read it uh, so you can just follow along. Um, Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a great man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servants, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaths. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why well, have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, I found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me 
and indeed has spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he served her roasted grain, and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded a servant, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not insult her. Also you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles, and leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. And then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about, um, I'm not sure how to pronounce that word, something of barley. She took it up and went to the city, and her mother-in-law saw uh, what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left um, after she was satisfied. Am I all right? Um, where do you glean today, and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said to her, The man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, Furthermore, he said to me, You should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. This is a very strange verse. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Does that make anyone excited? Okay. I personally think my wife has a wonderful mother-in-law, but that's beside the point. Okay. So just to recap that, sorry, there's a lot of recapping. Naomi comes back and she's shattered and Ruth says, look, um, I've got to go glean because if I don't go glean, we're not going to be able to eat. She goes to the field, she gleans, she meets a person called Boaz who is a relative who she has no idea. She comes back and she tells Naomi what has happened. That's pretty much all that happens uh, in Ruth 2. And so what I want to do is I want to give us something to hang our thoughts on. And number one, I want us to see that I really think even though this is called the book of Ruth, chapter 2 is really about the restoration of Naomi's faith. Okay, so I want you to be kind of thinking about through the whole chapter. And the three bits I want also to, to be thinking about is, is this number one, excuse me, number one, um, God's providence. Okay, God's providence. Um, the character which is often produced in tough circumstances. And three, I want us to be thinking of God as Redeemer. Okay, so firstly, God's providence. We're not going to go through it kind of verse by verse. It's a story. We got the over picture. So we're just going to pull out these things. Uh, Ruth chapter 2 verse 3 says, So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. Okay, now th- when you think about that, you're kind of thinking like, what in the world does that mean? And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Uh, the really interesting bit about this, is if you go back and look at the language, is that the is Bible is really clear that this is not just a coincidence. And you might think, well, what's the big deal, okay? If Boaz was a rich guy, he would probably have the biggest plot of land in the village, and everyone know where he was farming, so it wouldn't, it's not a big deal that she went to his field. But actually, in those times, you can kind of think of it as his field was like in a group like allotments. So there's all these fields mixed together. Ruth has no idea which one is his, and she just happens to walk up on the field that he owns. 
Okay, so we're going to talk about God's providence. There's a guy called J.I. Packer who has some wonderful things about what this exactly means. Okay, he says that God's providence is hands-on control. In other words, God is completely in charge of his world. His hands may be hidden, but his rule is absolute. And you might think, well, what does that mean for me? I mean, God's providence, he's in control over everything. Does it really mean God is in control over everything? So I just wanted to read a few verses to you um, and break it down into different bits about God's providence over different aspects of the world. So number one... Um, is God provident over the physical world, like physical things? Um, Psalm 104.14 says, uh, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. Matthew 5.45 says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. God's providence over the physical world. They say, well, that, that's nice, but what about people? Does God have providence over people? Acts 17, 26. This is an amazing verse, okay? God's providence over the peoples and the nations. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. If you have to think back to when you were in school, if you're in school now and you open up a history book and let's say you're studying like Alexander the Great, you know, it shows you a picture of a map of the world at that time. And they'll say like Alexander the Great's empire and they'll color it in like red. And underneath the caption, they'll have like a date, when it started, when it finished. Let me read this verse again, okay? Um, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times. He said, Alexander, your, your empire is going to start here and it's going to end here, and you're going to conquer this much land, but you can't conquer anymore. Why? Because it's mine and I'm giving it to you. Say, so, well, that, that, that's nice, God. He's, he, his providence is over people, groups, and nations. But what about me personally? I mean, does God really, is He really involved personally uh, in my life? Uh, Psalm 139.16. And by the way, a lot of these verses are Psalms. It's an amazing book of the Bible. Um, talking about someone who is not yet born. Okay? Psalm 139, verse 13 and 16. For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. When yet there was not one. I, I just think that is absolutely amazing. Okay, that before we were born, God has ordained the days that we will live. Paul says it like this in Galatians 1, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, and called me through His grace. If you're a Christian, you've been called through grace when you were still in your mother's womb. Amazing thought. Well, say, what about things that are even more personal? Like, what if I do really good at something? What if I'm really good at something? Or what if I fail at something? Is God's hand in some way in that? Psalm 75, 6-7. For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation. In other words, it's not just from chance. But God is judge. He puts down one, and He exalts the other. So in other words, if you've had a success in your life, in some way, shape, or form, God's providence in His hand has been in that for your good. If you've had some failure in some form or way or shape or another, He's had His hand in that. I don't know why. Maybe to keep you away from something you thought you wanted. Even the small, insignificant things God has providence over. Amazing verse, Psalm 16, It says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. What does it mean, lot cast in the lap? Well, if, if you read in Acts, uh, when the disciples chose a new disciple, uh, they used kind of this method. Was they put a couple rocks in a jar, I think, and they put marks in them so they could tell which one um, is for a certain person. And they take the jar and they'll roll it around and dump it out. And the first one that comes out, they'll take that it's God's making the decision on choosing something or the other. And, and to make it a modern translation, this is literally like saying if you go to Vegas and you roll dice on the craps table, if you get a 
7 or a snake eyes or an 11, it's because God's hand was in that. The fantastically amazing verse. Okay, so what, what's the point of all this thing about God's providence, okay? Here's the point, all right? It's a Psalm 4.8. Uh, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So this is the point of God being, having providence over everything. Is that when you go to sleep tonight, okay, your head should hit the pillow and you shouldn't be worrying about things that are going on. Okay, in the world, uh, uh, you, you know, the big picture or the small picture of your world. Because you should know that God is absolutely in control of everything that happens in some way, shape, or form. And J.I. Packer ends this kind of with another quote. He says, The doctrine of providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind forces, fortune, chance, luck, or fate. All that happens to them is divinely planned, and each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice, knowing that it's all for one spiritual and eternal good. And he quotes Romans 8.28. Okay, so the first thing I want us to be thinking about is God's providence. Secondly, I want us to be thinking about um, oftentimes uh, when we go through tough times like Naomi did, uh, God has purposes to develop character in us. Okay, so I want us to think a little bit about character. And James says, when you encounter trials, the testing of your faith will produce endurance. And the result of endurance is so that you will be perfect or spiritually mature and complete. So the question that I thought about is that what is my character like? And so this question I want to put to you is what is your character like? And when I was thinking about this, I thought, you know what? It's easy for me to be fake in circumstances and put on a certain character when I'm around people. But the truth of the matter is, is that when I'm in a tight spot, okay, that's when the real me comes out. And I think that that's true for life. If you want to see what someone is really like, see what they're like in a tight spot, a tough situation when the pressure is on. Um, I, I told us in the morning service a couple weeks ago, but um, we're, we're trying to, to work out if we should buy a property or not. And we got some advice from some friends, and they said that the most difficult thing, things in British life are death, divorce, and buying a house. And I thought that they were joking until I started talking to a mortgage company. Okay? And for those of you who know, I absolutely wanted to pull my hair out. Okay? Uh, obviously, not being British, I had to send in my passport and all my documents. Um, and, and I called them, said, hey, have you got my documents? Um, and I had to go, you know, go to a branch, and I had to get them scanned and signed off on and sent in. And the lady on the phone said, yeah, we got them, but uh, there appears to be a hologram on your passport copy. And I said, okay. And she said, well, we can't read the number that's on top of the hologram. And I thought to myself, right, this is myself, and so I think, you know, they put that there so that no one can make a fraudulent copy. And she goes, well, uh, we, we can't read it, so you're going to have to do it again. And the steam, you know, is rising out to my head. My poor wife is in the room saying, be nice, be nice. And it, it ends up that a space of 10 days, I had to go back to that, uh, that same branch of the bank four times and send my passport four times, the same one, before they would finally agree to accept it. Okay? Now, if we think about this, Naomi and Ruth are in a tight spot. Okay? Naomi is not taking it so well after losing her husband and two children as, as anyone would not. Okay? And if I could just bring up another little bit, um, probably, probably Elimelech moving his family to Moab, even though there was a family, was probably a wrong decision. Okay? Because the Moabites, as you can read in Scripture, were very wicked people. Okay? So it was probably not a good decision to move them to Moab, but he did anyway. All right, and I don't know if this is for anybody, but um, if you kind of feel like you've made a bad decision in the past and you're reaping those consequences now, what you're going to see in this passage is that even though Naomi has went along with this, God doesn't give up on her and He's not going to give up on you. So when she gets back, Naomi, her name means pleasant, 
Mark probably talked about this last week, uh, but she says, call me Mara, meaning bitter. In other words, uh, she has absolutely given up. Okay? She's, she's been faced with a trial, and she's just she's done with it. She doesn't want any more to do. Her faith in God, I can imagine, is probably really dwindling, um, which is a big contrast to Ruth's character. Ruth is in the same spot. Okay, And if you, if you read anything about the culture of this time, if you were a woman, unfortunately, and you didn't have a, a person to provide for you, you didn't have a lot of career options. Okay, You could pretty much do nothing. You could go glean uh, or do a couple other things. All right? So the, the future's not looking up. But what does Ruth do? A couple things uh, about her character. And especially, I guess, if I can talk give it to the ladies in here because it's Ruth, but uh, to the men as well. Um, examine your character in a tight spot. Uh, verse 2. Okay, Ruth was eager to provide for a mother-in-law. She didn't sit around weeks and go, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? She says, right, I'm going to go to the field. I'm going to get us some food. Okay? She is a diligent, she is a hard worker. Be thinking about your character. Okay? In verse 7 and verse 17, it describes how Ruth worked the entire day, only taking small breaks to rest. And we saw in a couple of the pictures the back-breaking, painstaking work she was doing. And lastly, in verse 10, she was humble. Okay? She was humble. When Boaz approaches her and really just says some amazing things about how generous he's going to be to her, uh, she didn't have a hint of an attitude. In fact, it says she falls down. Um, and she didn't even be worthy to be, to be spoken to as if she was an Israelite. Okay, the humble heart, humble spirit. And if I could say especially to the ladies, that is kind of what God has called as a character. Not, to be, not that you can't talk, not that you can't say things, not that you can't be an uh, outgoing personality, but that gentle, that quiet spirit um, is something that God says, you know, uh, I have uh, for you to be like. <clears throat> the second thing that will reveal your character, not only being in a tight spot, uh, is when you're put into a situation or you enter into an agreement, or you enter into a relationship, and you know that that is going to cause you uh, to spend a lot of time or to spend uh, a lot of resources, and you know that if you do that, you're not going to get that much out of it. Okay? If you're put in those situations, if you haven't lived very long, you'll, you'll come across this. Uh, that will really reveal your character. I'll give you an example. Uh, my wife and I were first married. We lived in Memphis. And um, there was this, in our neighborhood, there was, there was a lot of homeless people in Memphis. And there was this homeless guy. His name is JR. And he slept on the streets. And when he wanted food, he would go to someone's house and knock on the door. And he would want to do something like wash your car or cut the grass. And he wants you to pay him. And he would tell you that. <laughs> and so every morning, like clockwork at 9 a.m., which before I had kids, I thought that was early. Now I understand it's not early. But at 9 o'clock in the morning... Just like that. And, and, let, and until you got out of bed and went to the door, he would not stop knocking. I'm not exaggerating. And Becca and I just, my wife's name is Becca, we just got to the point where we're like, you know what? We don't need our grass cut every week. Our car is fine, cleaned enough. But we are going to let this guy do that, and we are going to pay him. Um, and we're just going to give up of ourselves, even though we're getting nothing in return about this. We developed a relationship with him, shared the gospel with him. Um, and, and you know, the reason was is because, you know what, God, God, Jesus would have done that, and God would have done that. And God did that for us. So second thing that reveals your character is, is what you do in situations uh, when something is required of you, um, but you know that you're not going to get much back. Okay? Um, Romans 5 kind of crystallized this when it talks about God and our relationship with us. And Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows His love for us in that while we're we still sinners, 
God died for us. See, God did not wait until somehow we made our life all nice and shiny for Him to give up His Son. He did it knowing really He didn't get a lot in return. I mean, if you think about it, if you are a child of God, you have access to all the riches in Christ. And what does He have access to? Your life. We'll compare those two things. I mean, let's be honest. His riches far, far surpass the riches of what you have. Yet He entered into that relationship. And He did it first. And if we take a look at Boaz, okay, when Ruth comes to him, she, she's in desperation. I mean, she's picking up food off of the ground. Okay? And up to this point, Boaz does not uh, stand to gain anything by helping Ruth, but he does anyway. In fact, he doesn't just help Ruth by obeying the letter of the law. Okay, because the law told him, the law told him that any bits of food, uh, the you know the field that he owns, if it falls to the ground, uh, he's supposed to let the poor come and gather it up. Okay, that's in Leviticus chapter twenty-five. So if you want to read more about that, you can. Um, there's something on my nose that's itching. Sorry about that. Uh, but anyway, he, he doesn't just he doesn't just obey the letter of the law. Okay, He goes one step further. So what do you mean? When verse 9 he tells Ruth, he says, look, don't go to another field. Okay, You just come back to this field throughout the whole harvest and they'll help you. Verse 15 he says, look, tell the servants to pull out some of the stalks of barley which have already been bundled. In other words, he didn't want Ruth scrambling around the whole field trying to pick up the bits. The nice stalks of the grain and the barley that had been bundled up, he said, look, just pull some out for her. Make your job easy. She can just come around and pick those up. And in verse 15 he even, he even basically gives Ruth lunch. And he gives her so much that she has enough to take back later to Naomi, her mother-in-law. Okay? And, and, can I, and I had to ask myself the question, which I'll ask you, is am I a person that just sticks to the letter of the law? Or do my words and my actions in dealing with people go beyond that? In other words, do I manifest what the spirit of the law is talking about? Not just the letter, the spirit. Okay? I'll give you an example of that. As I was talking to someone who had been burned in a relationship, rightly so, and we were talking about forgiveness, okay? And you know, there's a passage in the New Testament when, G- when Peter looks at Jesus and says, look Jesus, if someone wrongs me, um, h- how many times am I supposed to forgive them? Seven times? And in that, in that context, in the Jewish context, that was a lot. Because the rabbis would say, well they did it to you two or three times, that's enough, write them off. And Jesus says, no Peter, not seven times, seventy times seven. And the guy I was talking to who had been generally hurt said, you know what, that's proof in the New Testament. Jesus is saying that you only have to forgive somebody so many different times, and after that you can write them off. And you think about that and you say, well, that's kind of what Jesus said, but I mean, is he saying you get out a list and like, okay, someone wrongs me, I write their name down and put a tick, and when I get to 490 times, I stop forgiving them? I mean, what's the spirit of the law there? Jesus is saying to Peter, you don't give them 500 times, you forgive them as many times as they hurt you. And that's tough. As many times as they hurt you, but that's the spirit. It's the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And Boaz has this character. Uh, secondly, and I guess if I could speak to the, to the men in the room, to everyone, but specifically to the men when we look at Boaz. The second characteristic about Boaz is that he is gentle and compassionate. In verse 8, he addresses Ruth as his daughter, which is just a term of endearment. Boaz is probably in his 40s or maybe early 50s. And that, you know, he, he doesn't need to treat Ruth with any respect. Okay, especially with her being a foreigner. And he chooses to gently call her daughter. And it is amazing. The Bible says so much things in so few words. For example, if you look at 1 Corinthians 13, it talks about love. Paul only writes really two descriptive things about love. It says love is patient and love is kind. You may think that's so simple, but in my own life, one of the hardest things to apply from Scripture is being patient with people and being kind with people. It's an incredibly difficult thing to do, but that's the challenge 
that's a challenge, I think, that th- this passage of Scripture sets to us. And especially, I would say, to the men in the room, is, for example, when you deal with your children. When I deal with my children, when I deal with my wife, and I deal with my friends, am I patient with them? Am I kind to them? Am I gentle? Am I compassionate? A lot of times it doesn't come naturally for a man to be like that. And the last characteristic about Boaz, uh, I love his name. Um, and I love the Bible when you read it, because I really think some people just make the Bible out to be mush. And it's just, it's amazing. Boaz's name, it literally means, in him is strength. Verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, He is called a man of valor, and which is translated twice in the book of Judges as a valiant warrior. Okay? And I was doing some research on this, on this phrase, and in the study Bibles I had, had this great line. It said, Boaz had the capacity to obtain property, and he had the capacity to protect his property. In other words, if someone was coming against him or his family and they were going to do something wrong, he had the ability, the knowledge, the strength to probably pick up a sword with his servants and say, you're not going to do that. Okay, and that is a character that is looked up on, looked highly upon in Scripture. And I think that a lot of times when we read or hear things about Jesus and disciples, it focused on the meekness and the kindness and the compassion, which is absolutely essential as we see. But if I, especially to the men, um, do you have strength in you? Do you have strength in you that people around you would look at you to say, wow, he's got strength in him that when the rubber meets the road, I know that he's going to stand up and do the right thing, even if it's not the easiest thing to do. And I also think that it is amazing that that was Boaz's name. You know, in, in cultures in the past, you wouldn't just name a child because it's a popular name. Okay? You would name some, someone because you wanted that person to develop the characteristics that that name meant. In him is strength. You know, my son's name is Jude. It means praise. Obviously, I live in England. That was not a good move because everyone says, hey, Jude. And, and I have to, and, but it, it's an opportunity to explain to them, you know what, my, there's a time my wife and I didn't think we have children. And he gave us a child, and so we named him Praise, because that's what we felt. My little girl's name is Adele, which means noble, because we wanted to raise a daughter who was noble. And as I started thinking about that, um, my name is Joshua. It means Jehovah saves or the Lord saves. And I was just thinking about that. You know, if I wanted a name where I am in my place in my life, if I wanted God to give me another name, what would it be? And I want you to think about that. In the place you are right now in your life, if you would want God to look down on you and give you a new name, what name would that be? Would it be compassion? Would it be strength? I don't know what it would be, but God wants, in a spiritual sense, to give you a new name. So we talked about God's providence, and we've uh, talked about the character that's produced. And lastly, I just want to touch on this last bit of God as Redeemer, because I think in the last two chapters it will uh, be more clear and go into more detail. But I, wa- I do want to talk about God uh, as a Redeemer, because it's a ma- major part of this book uh, and in all Scripture. Um, when Ruth comes back from the harvest to give Naomi the good news... Uh, in verse 20, Naomi says, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead, which is a strange phrase. Naomi also says to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Okay? And this begins the book of Ruth's great theme of the kinsman redeemer. So if in this whole series you don't get anything else, this is the main bit of it. Uh, to redeem means to buy something back. And there's just a couple of ways that Le- Levitical law talked about this. Uh, one, in the situation with Ruth, when a brother dies, a, clo- or a husband dies, a close relative is supposed to adopt them into their family by marrying them. Uh, secondly, if an Israelite was really poor, they had to sell their land, take money to eat. A close relative was supposed to buy that land back. What an amazing thing. 
I mean, can you imagine if you foreclosed on your house or one of your relatives say, no, I'm going to buy the house back for you? It's an amazing thing. Or lastly, if an Israelite was so poor, they sold their property that the only way that they could survive was to sell themselves into slavery. A near kinsman says, no, that's not going to happen. Um, I'm going to buy you out of that slavery. Okay, and especially with this last custom, it illustrates how God spiritually buys us back or redeems us from being slaves to sin. Okay, so you got, you got to picture this. Okay, Ruth has worked all day long in the field. She comes back. She has absolutely no clue, really, about this Boaz guy except from what he's told her. She just tells her mother-in-law what's been going on. And when Naomi, who has absolutely been crushed by the weight of the things that have happened to her, she hears this from Ruth, and that glimmer of hope just pops up in her. Okay, because she sees Boaz, or excuse me, she sees God's providence moving, and she sees Boaz as someone who will redeem her and her family so they won't be forced to do something drastic. Okay, and as you can guess, we, on this side of the cross, we can look back at Boaz as a beautiful picture of Christ redeeming us back for being slaves to sin. And this passage I'm going to read is in Romans 6, two verses in Romans 6. And I didn't really want to read it because it uses the word slave. Okay? And some translations say servant, but to be honest, the best translation is a slave. So we're just going to read it. You're smart people. You can take it home, get on your knees, and deal with what it's saying to you. But this is Romans 6, verse 22 and 23. It says, But now you have been set free from sin. In other words, you are slaves to sin. Picture a big shackle with a chain. You were slaves to sin, but now you have been set free from sin. And this is so interesting. You're still slaves, but who are you slaves to? You were slaves to God. That's a humbling thought to think really in our entire life we're going to have a master. It's either going to be sin or it's going to be God. And Paul goes on to say, look, if you make God your master, and Jesus says, you know, my yoke is light. It's not, it's not a heavy yoke. Is if you make God your master, if you become His servant, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. What's this? That's a big word. You know what the word means? That you are being made like Jesus. You are being made perfect. You are being made holy. So there's a lot of people who think that the only people who are to be called saints are the people you know that go to some foreign land and start an orphanage. That's not true. If you're a child of God, the Scripture calls you holy. It calls you saints. The process by which you are being made like Christ is called sanctification. So when you serve God with your whole life, you're being made holy. And in the end, you receive eternal life. The last verse I'll read. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what I'm going to do is just pray um, through a couple of those things. And as the service goes on, if a worship team is going to come or if someone else is going to come and lead us. Um, but what I like to do is just kind of close our eyes and I'll just kind of pray over us. Father God, I just want to thank you so much for your providence that we can go to sleep tonight knowing uh, that if we're in good times or bad times, that you are ultimately in control. And I want to thank you that you don't give up on us, just like you didn't give up on Naomi. And God, I want to thank you that those tough times produce in us character that you were pleased with. And Father God, I just pray lastly that we understand what it means that Jesus, you have redeemed us from our sin. God, and I just pray for just the Christians in the room, uh, including myself, God, that knowing that you have set us free from being slaves to sin, God, that we don't go back to that sin because we're set free from it.
God, I just pray for the people right now in the name of Jesus who don't know you, that don't even know that they're slaves to sin, that you have set them free. Father, I love you so much, and I thank you so much for Jesus. I pray these things in his holy name. Amen.